First Peter chapter two verses thirteen through seventeen. There are many benefits to going slowly through this letter, considering each verse as we've been doing. But there is the possibility in doing so that we will miss the forest or the trees. Uh, keep in mind this letter would have been read aloud to groups of Christians, and they would have heard the whole thing in one sitting. Because we're reading it much slower, it's possible to lose our bearings and to fail to see the, the landmarks that mark major ideas and turning points in Peter's thinking. And this is why I'm trying to pull back occasionally and remind us of, of where we are. I pointed out in our last message that we entered into a new section of this letter beginning with verse 11. And the first part, Peter was dealing with how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he has now turned to dealing with how we relate to the world around us. And the first social sphere that we are called to relate to in a particular way is the authority that's placed above us. So look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2 as I read verses 13 through 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. This is God's word. Itzhak Perlman, he's probably the world's most famous violinist. I remember reading at one point that he was asked why he still practices three to four hours a day after having achieved uh, the level of proficiency that he has achieved in playing the violin. And this is not his exact quote, but he said something to the effect of, the only way to play with freedom on the stage is to practice in private. He wanted to know the piece so well that when he gets up to play, he's not playing notes, but he's playing music. Perlman uh, knew or knows he's still alive, in order to play with what appears to be total freedom in public, he must discipline himself with rigorous practice behind closed doors. And what people hear is the result of such discipline. The music is not merely external to him, it's been internalized. And this goes beyond reading notes, this goes even beyond memorization. The amount of practice required to reach Perlman's level of violin playing does something to the brain. So in the concert, what happens is, is muscle memory takes over. The performer is not thinking about how to play the music. The music is flowing freely out of him. Freedom of this sort is only achieved through submission to practice. If one submits to the rigorous routine and the discipline of practice, then he or she is not going to be bound in the performance. The Lord desires that we live as people who have been set free. 
And as we'll see, though it sounds like this should not be the case, freedom comes through submission. There are always two extremes we as Christians are tempted to go when it comes to relating to the society around us. We either accommodate or we isolate. We either blend in to such a degree that there's no distinction between our lifestyle and those of unbelievers, or we try so hard to be different that we fail to even connect with others. So on one hand, you have accommodation in the church that will eventually lead to compromise. And this is usually done under the supposed banner of love. On the other hand, you have isolation, which eventually leads to cutting ourselves off from people. And this is usually done under the supposed banner of truth. The Christian way, the, the biblical way, however, is neither accommodation nor isolation, but proclamation. We proclaim with our words truth that flows out of a place of love. And we proclaim with our actions a love that flows from a place of truth. So how does this look practically? Well, Peter tells us. Again, we are in the body of this letter, the substance of what Peter wants to impart to his readers and the Lord wants to impart to us. And the first sphere of relationship that Peter addresses is the Christian's relationship to governmental authority. We read back in verse 12 last Sunday that we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And so we are this morning considering how to do that under Socio-political authority. So first of all, what I want us to see is that submission is necessary. Submission is necessary. Look with me at verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Every human institution. That literally means every human creature. That's actually the word there. It's not institution as we would as we would know it, but it's actually creature, every human creature. In other words, Peter is talking about submission to actual flesh and blood people. Even though we may use words like government or institution to describe these power structures, we understand that each of these entities is composed of what? It's composed of people. We want to keep in mind as we discuss the idea of submission to authority in any sphere that we are really talking about how to properly relate to people. Because life is composed of relationships. Some of those relationships are horizontal, like with friends or with coworkers. And other relationships are vertical, like with civil officials or employers. Though we in our modern American context really know very little about living under oppression, Peter's readers, they knew a lot about it. And they were about to experience more. Regardless of the intensity of oppression brought to bear upon you for your faith in Jesus, you and I, we still have a responsibility to proclaim our faith in Jesus. The reality is, is that oppression often comes, at least in history, from power structures. Your reaction to this pressure, it speaks loudly. This passage, it begins with the word that probably makes us all squirm a little bit, submit, submit. Uh, we're going to encounter it again and again throughout this section, a section that began back in chapter 2, verse 13, and goes through chapter 3, verse 7. As individuals, we don't really like this word submit. We pride ourselves on our 
autonomy, on our individuality, on our ability to make our own way, on our self-sufficiency. And submission, it just sounds so limiting. Freedom, on the other hand, that sounds limitless. And the interesting thing is, is that Peter mentioned both in this passage, submission and freedom. There's actually freedom and submission. But, but we don't tend to see it that way. Because we view both freedom and submission differently than the Bible defines them. And so we're asking this morning, God, to give us spiritual eyes to view each one of those things, freedom and submission, as he does. Submit simply means to place yourself under another person. This can be voluntary or compulsory. When you became a Christian, you voluntarily submitted yourself to a person, Jesus Christ. Every person who has ever chosen to become a Christian made the first time decision to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it does not end there. As a, as a follower of Jesus, you continue to make the daily decision to live in submission to him. Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus said, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whatever areas you refuse to bring under submission to Jesus will be areas of disobedience. And those areas where you fail to submit will be the areas of your life that are disordered, dark, and discouraging. Beyond submitting to Christ as Lord, we also understand that within our society, there are authority structures over us. Even as we each stand in positions of authority over others, this is inevitable. It is part of God's creation design. Even though you might be uncomfortable with the idea of submitting to someone else, you do it every day. You do it at work if you have a boss. You do it driving your car when you obey the traffic laws that are enforced by the authority of law enforcement. You do it if you're part of a voluntary association that has any sort of leadership structure, even if it's a book club. A book club usually has a president. You expect your children or grandchildren to submit to you, even as you at one time submitted to your parents. In the marriage relationship, there's submission of a, of a wife to her husband with the reciprocal honor a husband is to show to his wife. In the church, there's authority established by God as invested in pastors and in elders. And like it or not, in saying all of this, none of us is free from authority. We submit even as we're submitted to. One reason that submission has become such an ugly word in our modern Western context is because each of us would like to believe that no one should be over us. This is the message we constantly receive. Media and social media pour gasoline on the fire of individualism. Now, we don't have any problem being over another person, but we tend to, we tend to chafe when we think about someone being over us. I'm my own person. I'll do as I please. No one can tell me what to do. Yet the reality, again, is that no one can escape submission. God is the ultimate authority from whom all other authority is established. You can no more decide against submitting to authority than you can decide against participating in God's creation. And, and 
For those who refuse persistently to submit, they end up in a place called prison. If you don't learn to submit in society outside the prison walls, then you will certainly learn within. What was the, the first sin through which death entered into the world? It was when Adam refused to submit to God's one law. Adam, as the head of the human race, was given the primary responsibility to submit to God. And when he failed to do so, every single person who would descend from him, that's all of us, inherited a rebellious nature, a nature that does not want to submit. And this is another reason that we don't like the idea of submission. The sin nature within is opposed to God. Adam wanted to be his own God. And this is nothing more than a refusal to submit to God's authority. And we each, in our own way, have followed the same road since. Another reason that we tend to have a, a knee-jerk reaction against the idea of submission is because we've so often seen it abused. There is no doubt that people abuse their positions of authority. It happens every day. It happens at work. It happens in families. It happens in marriages. It happens in the church. And it's a tragedy every single time that it does. And we should prayerfully call out abuses of power when we see them. But just because someone abuses their authority does not mean that submission is illegitimate. It simply goes to prove that the humans will take anything good and distort it. This is what sin does. Submission is a beautiful thing. It's only in submission to God that you will find true freedom. And as we'll see, it's only in submission to other people that you will be able to be an effective witness. So the problem is not with the idea of submitting. The problem is we have allowed society to redefine the concept to mean something the biblical writers never intended. The reason Peter is going in this direction is because he is fleshing out what it looks like to keep your behavior excellent. As Christians, we know that we're going to be slandered, we're going to be ostracized, we're going to be marginalized, and we will have a choice as to how we're going to react. Amazingly, Peter tells us that a major area in which we can impact the lost world around us is through submission. So having seen that submission is necessary, let's consider how that looks specifically in the socio-political sphere. So governmental authority is necessary. Governmental authority is necessary. Though verse 13 starts off broadly, introducing the idea of submission, it quickly hones in on our responsibility towards governmental authorities. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. First thing to notice there is this. Every act of submission is for the Lord's sake. Though we might be submitting to men, we are doing it unto the Lord. And before we consider our relationship to governmental authorities, we need to realize that there is a call upon each of our lives to submit actually to every human being. This is the submission of respect and honor. Everyone, regardless of, of who they are, Christian or non-Christian, deserves respect and honor. This is because every single person is made in the image of God. 
And even if a person denies the God in whose image that they are made, that does not change the fact that they were created to reflect his character by living in relationship to him. And though that relationship is only entered into by trusting in Jesus Christ, even if someone is not in fellowship with their creator, they are still designed to image him. That image doesn't change. And for this reason alone, because human beings are special and they are particular, a particular creation of God, we are to honor and to respect everyone. As Paul writes in Titus 3.2, remind them to show consideration to all men. And again in Galatians 5.10, let us do good to all people. When you submit to another person by showing them respect and honor simply because they are a person, you are doing it for the Lord's sake. Think about the positive and powerful effect that we as a church would have on those around us if we had held every individual in respect and honor. Not because they deserve it, not because they earned it, but because every individual is an image bearer of the God of all creation. That image, it might be marred and broken, that mirror shattered by sin, and it no longer reflects the object like it should, but there's tremendous potential for every individual to be who God has created and called them to be. And before a person is ever going to consider whether or not they will trust God, they want to feel from us the same selfless love that flows from the God that we claim to know. The next thing to notice is the role of governments. It does not matter what type of government, monarchy, oligarchy, democracy, republic, even a dictatorship. They all have one primary role as defined by the Bible. And this role extends all the way down to local governments. We find this role in verse 14. Governmental authority is in place for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do what is right. In other words, governments enforce laws. This is what the Bible boils down the role of all governments to. They punish those who break laws and they praise those who keep them. And in this way, governmental authority is a stabilizing component in society. This is the primary reason that God established government. Imagine the chaos there would be if there was no one around to enforce the law. Some cities, they have actually gotten a small taste of this by politicizing policing and reducing their police force, bad idea. But if every police department was abolished right now, it would take about an hour for society to fall apart. And then in about 24 hours, groups of people will have bound together and created their own community police presence. The same would happen if there was suddenly no local leadership. People would appoint somebody to lead them. So necessary is, is government to ensure stability in society that a vacuum is not allowed to exist. Again, this whole idea of authority is baked into the universe. When we submit ourselves to these governmental power structures, we are pleasing to the Lord. This leads to a third point. Governments lose their right of submission when they forsake their God-given role. Here's what I mean by this. If the role of every government, federal 
or state or local, regardless of the type of government it is, that the role of every government at its most fundamental level is to punish evildoers and reward those who do right, that a government that fails to do this is no longer operating within its God-given boundaries. When a government reverses its role and begins to reward the evildoer and punish those who do good, they have forsaken their God-given role. The Lord does not expect submission to laws that are contrary to his laws. There are numerous examples of this from Scripture and from history. Probably the most notable from Scripture is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 3. This is when Nebuchadnezzar demanded that everyone worship the huge golden image that he had commissioned to be made. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they could not obey this law without disobeying God's law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to idols. So they refused. And the Lord rewarded their faithfulness by preserving them through the flames of the furnace. Now God does not always preserve the lives of those who choose to obey him over contradictory dictates of man. But God is always pleased by our obedience. Just as it's the Lord's will for you and for me to submit to governmental authorities, it is the Lord's will that we resist the laws of those same authorities when they are clearly in defiance of his word. Another more recent example from history would be those under Nazi occupation uh, who chose to defy the government edicts by hiding Jews. The German authorities, they were definitely in the 30s and 40s rewarding evildoers and punishing those who did good by rounding up Jewish people and shipping them off to concentration camps. Six million plus died under such conditions. So to hide a Jewish family in your cellar was pleasing to God, even if it was against the law of the land. I think we all understand that. This is the distinction that we need to make. We always honor the individual people who are in positions of authority. Submit yourselves to every human institution or creature. We honor the people even when the same people are defying God with their policies. We still treat them with honor and with respect. But we do not submit to the unjust law itself. And Peter sums up this idea in verse 17 when he writes, Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Notice the wording, verse 17. Honor all people. Everyone, without exception, should receive your honor. The honor simply means to value someone, to act respectfully toward them. And then we read, love the brotherhood. So this means that when it comes to each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, we take things a step further. We love one another. We do more than honor. We actively Show love. Look at the last phrase. Honor the king. Well, this speaks of a person too. A king is a person. The emperor is a person. Whoever that leader or official happens to be, honor him. But finally, the third phrase in that verse, verse 17, fear God. Fear God. We don't only honor God. 
we don't only love God, we fear God. And this makes the clear distinction between the submission we owe people and the submission that we owe to God. You honor God, yes. You love God, of course, but you also fear him. You're not called to fear unbelievers. You're not called to fear believers. You're called to fear God. You're to stand in reverential awe and amazement and trembling in worship before his greatness and his holiness and his glory. And because you fear God, precisely because you fear God, you honor anyone he has put in, a, in an authority position over you. Because you fear God, you also refuse to submit to laws that are contrary to his or to people who demand you do something contrary to what God expects you to do. And there's no contradiction here. As Paul writes in Romans 13:1, there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Individuals who are in positions of authority are there because they are placed there by God. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. They have a responsibility to fulfill their God-given role. Should they refuse, you no longer have the responsibility to submit. You can still honor the person without submitting to their ungodly demands. And in doing so, you demonstrate that you fear God. Governmental authority is necessary. Next, in our passage, we see that doing right is necessary. Doing right is necessary. So this brings us to the reason that Peter instructs submission to governing authority. Verse 15. Such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. So keep in mind that Peter's not writing a a treatise on government here. He's writing a very practical letter to instruct Christians on how to withstand societal pressure and still have an effect on those around them. So part of the way that you keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles is by doing what is right in the area of submission to the king and to the governors that are appointed by him. Most scholars place the writing of this letter between 62 and 63 A.D., Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire at that time. And if that's a familiar name to you, probably because Nero has gone down in history for several infamous reasons. No doubt some of the outrageous stories about Nero that have been told over and over were either fabricated or embellished by his political enemies. That even happened then. But there's enough that we know with near certainty that paints a bleak picture of his character. Nero did have his own mother murdered. Evidence points to Nero being so paranoid that he had most of his relatives killed as well. Uh, he kicked one of his pregnant wives in the stomach during a marital spat and she lost her baby. He married a young man in a mock wedding at the end of a, a days-long, huge, illicit public party, and though he probably did not light the fire that burned much of Rome, Nero did blame it on the Christians because they were convenient scapegoats. He had Christians executed in horrific ways, including lighting them on fire as human torches, and he also built this sprawling, luxurious palace on the ruins left in the wake of that fire, which of course, as you can imagine, contributed to rumors that he had in fact started the fire to clear land for his new palace. 
it is difficult to sort through all of that which is true and that which is embellished about Nero, but one thing is for sure. He unleashed fierce government-sanctioned persecution on Christians from 64 to 65 AD. This is the time period in which both Peter and Paul lost their lives. Tradition has it that Peter was crucified upside down and Paul was beheaded. As of the writing of 1 Peter, all of this is still a couple of years in the future. But there is coming a time very soon for Peter's readers when the passive persecution will turn very active. The point is, whether it's Nero's administration or Joseph Stalin's reign of terror in communist Russia or Mao Zedong's cultural revolution or the ungodly policies that come out of a supposed democratic administration, the instruction is still the same. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake, for such is the will of God. In doing so, in doing what is right, you will silence the ignorance of foolish men. In some way, the testimony of living in obedience to the power structures around us will make a difference. Foolish men in verse 15. That does not mean people without intellectual capacity. This is not talking about stupid people. Foolish is used in the same way that we often find it used in Proverbs. It refers to those who are morally debased. They do not fear God. They do not walk in God's ways. Uh, they make comments that reveal their ignorance about God and about his will and character. They need to be silenced. Not with our words, but with our actions. These foolish men, they look down upon Christians as disturbers of the peace, even as traitors. One reason that people worship the local gods is because... They believe that, that they must appease those gods to keep them from bringing misfortune or natural disasters down upon their town or cities. And so for a person to refuse to worship at local temples, like the Christians refused to do, was to risk the disfavor of the gods. Which helps us to realize why Christians were looked down upon with such grave suspicion. The thought was, they're putting our city at risk. What's more? They don't even properly acknowledge the emperor. They refuse to fear Nero. Though they may not fear Nero, they will surely honor him as king. They're going to honor anyone in any position of authority, just as we should. And by doing right in the eyes of the governing authorities, so far as it does not conflict with their faith, Christians demonstrate there's nothing to the idea that, that they want to start a revolution or overthrow the government or even depose Caesar. Most of the ignorant talk of foolish men is extinguished simply by the way that we live our lives. The question is, what does it mean to do right? And I ask this because if everyone, Christian and non-Christian alike, is expected at the bare minimum to obey the law, in what way do Christians necessarily stand out? We don't want to be people who simply meet the bare minimum. We want to go out of our way as Christians to engage in good works and to exceed that which is expected. Watchman Nee was a Chinese pastor. He started a number of churches in China, indigenous churches, Chinese-led churches, uh, leading up to the communist takeover of 1949. At that time, all the missionaries, all the foreign missionaries were expelled from the country. 
and Chinese pastors, they were systematically rounded up and imprisoned. Ni, he was high on the government list. And so his friends and his co-workers, they urged him to flee to Hong Kong while he still had time to do so. At that time, Hong Kong was not a part of China. But Ni refused. He was convinced that he should stay and do all that he still could through his writing and through his preaching to prepare the church for the fierce persecution that was coming. And sure enough, his day did come. He was arrested and he was imprisoned. And he was never seen again except by those who also found themselves imprisoned. Some who were released gave testimony to the incredible impact of his ministry that continued within the walls of the prison and within the walls of the, of the work camp. And he was in Chinese prisons for 20 years before his death. And we only know about his death because of rumors that filtered back the states. So how do Christians do right? Well, we go out of our way to do more than is expected, even and especially in the face of oppressive governments. Christians are the most law-abiding people that a good ruler can wish for. At the same time, Christians are the most frustrating people for a ruler intent on abusing his power. Doing right is necessary. And lastly, I want us to see that obedience is necessary. Obedience is necessary. Here we arrive at the issue beneath the issue. Freedom. Verse 16. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Like submission, freedom is a word that we often hear differently than the way the Bible defines it or uses it. We think of freedom as the opportunity to do whatever we want to do whenever we want to do it. And this is how our modern society defines it, right? Freedom is having no constraints. It's having no restraints. You are free to do whatever you want. And this has evolved into the idea that you can even be whoever you want to be to the extent of changing your gender. And for anyone to question your decision is an affront to your freedom. The Bible never uses freedom in this way. Freedom in the Bible is never complete self-autonomy. In fact, to define freedom this way is actually to reverse the meaning of the word. You see, if, if your idea of freedom is doing whatever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, then your so-called freedom is really bondage. You will suffer the bondage of negative consequences. You are certainly free to choose, but you are not free of the consequences of your choices. Left to ourselves, we will choose that which pleases ourselves, not that which pleases God. Anytime our choices are outside of the will of God, we suffer the bondage of negative consequences. You are free to run that red light, but you're not free from the consequences of a broken body when you're T-boned in the intersection. You're free to eat a box of Little Debbie's every day and to top it off with fried chicken every supper. But you're not free from the consequences of the heart attack that you probably will have. 
You're free to have sex with someone who's not your spouse, but you're not free from the consequences of an STD or a pregnancy outside of marriage or a broken marriage. What we call freedom is so often bondage. The freedom that God gives the Christian is the freedom to obey him. The freedom to obey him. Before you were saved, you were a slave to sin. This is what we read in Romans 6.16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one that you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? The fact is, everyone is a slave. Christians and non-Christians alike. You're either sin slave or you're God slave. This is why Peter writes in verse 16, use your freedom as bond slaves of God. Who are you going to serve? You'll serve somebody. You'll serve something. Either you obey sin or you obey God. To obey your sinful desires is to be enslaved by the consequences of those desires. To obey God is to be free of those consequences. Sin leads to death. Obedience leads to life. Since everyone is a slave to something, either you submit to God or you submit to sin. And this is the paradox. Freedom is found in submission, not to sin. Freedom is found in submission, not to sin, but to God. So when you act as free men, you are choosing to obey God. To us, and I'm sure to his readers, Peter's readers, Submission sounds like bondage. Yet, when you submit to the power structures of society in the Lord, you are submitting to the Lord. God established them, and obedience to God is the only pathway to freedom. Submission to God is true freedom. Do not use the freedom of choice that God gives you to please yourself. Use it to please Him. You're free to obey God but you're not free to disobey governmental authorities. To do so is to use your freedom as a covering for evil. It's to say, since I'm free to obey God, I'm choosing not to obey the earthly authority over me. But God's freedom is not a cloak for you to hide your sin behind. God's freedom is submission to the boundaries established by authority structures who in turn are established by God. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. The reason that Jesus can offer abundant life is because he himself is that life. What is abundant life? What's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? That's Romans 14, 17. Jesus lived a life of, of utter righteousness. He dwelled continually in peace. He always experienced joy. And that is freedom. That is what obedience will do for you. Jesus was the freest person to ever live because he was the most obedient person to ever live. Freedom is submission. Jesus lived his life in complete submission to his Father in heaven. He was perfectly submitted and he was perfectly free. Philippians 2 7, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant. Where did that perfect submission take Jesus? Well, it took him straight to the cross. 
Though he was never disobedient, Jesus was punished for our disobedience. And he rose from the dead into new, abundant, eternal life. And through faith in him, you become a partaker of that life, of that perfectly free life. Because on the cross, Jesus was treated as if he lived your disobedient life. Now you are treated as if you lived his obedient life. Walk in the freedom of that obedience. If you're a Christian, there is no condemnation. There is no guilt, at least from God. If you're a Christian, there is no compulsion. You do not obey because you want God to do something for you. You obey because God's already done something for you. Because Jesus submitted to God unto death, you submit to God unto life. Obedience is true freedom. If you're a Christian, it's obedience that's going to bring you joy and peace. The greatest act of obedience is submitting to God. And as you find out what that looks like, you will increasingly embrace your newfound freedom. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we proclaim that he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Father, we thank you we're no longer slaves to disobedience, but we are your bond slaves. And we want to live our lives so that is evident to those around us, Father. Let us never forget that there is freedom and obedience, Lord. That the joy and the peace that so easily eludes us, that so filled the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that that is available simply as we delight to obey you. May we taste this freedom. May we live out of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name.